Hey everybody, how's it going? Uh, this is the Flashpoint Podcast. My name is Owen Higgins. I am your host as always. Uh, today I am joined by Ben Judah of the Atlantic Council. Uh, ben is a author, journalist, researcher, um, a friend, and um, we've been talking about uh, doing a show together for, for, for a little while, and, and I'm glad we have this opportunity now. Uh, he has uh, been doing some work on the Ukraine-Russia conflict, uh, specifically, most recently, on the role of Western banks and financial institutions in hiding Russian money, uh, which is a great video, more per- perfect union. It's about like eight minutes long. I would, I would recommend uh, that you watch it, uh, you know, preferably after listening to this. Um, uh, really good stuff. He also has an article at Unheard about the Russia we've lost. Also, highly recommend that. Uh, but just um, just a couple minutes ago, uh, Ben, and right now it's Friday at 2 p.m. Uh, if you're listening to this on replay, uh, Ben uh, just hosted a panel uh, with U.S. Senator Bernie Sanders, um, as well as David Lammy and... Um, I'm, I'm going to try and not uh, butcher this name. Delara Burkhart, I believe. That's uh, right. And, right. Yeah. So, Ben, so thanks so much for joining us. Um, no, no, no. You... We've uh, really been looking forward to this. Yeah, yeah. No, it's great. It's great. I'm really glad that uh, that we had this opportunity. Um, you know, before we get into the other stuff, uh, you know, kind of the stuff that we had kind of planned this around, I was hoping that you could, you know, for people who haven't um, checked out the whole panel co- uh, conversation that you had with Sanders uh, could you just kind of give us a give us an overview of that and maybe a bit of a, a, a replay? Of course. Well, we really wanted to put together a panel looking at the structural weaknesses of Europe that have been exposed by the crisis. And those are corruption, kleptocracy, tying together this dirty nexus of Russian banks and European banks and uh, American banks also, and the whole world of kind of murky offshore finance that the, Pu- that the Putin oligarchs have thrived in. And then this question of hydrocarbons, oil and gas in Europe, because so much gas comes from Russia, so much oil comes from Russia. If you're getting off oil and gas, it basically means you're getting off Russia. So we invited uh, Senator Sanders to talk about that. And David Labby, the shadow foreign secretary in the UK, that's the lead Labour politician in the opposition whose job it is, is to uh, be the sort of um, to, to sort of shadow the foreign secretary and to kind of uh, assume the role if uh, the party takes power of the uh, secretary of state. That's what it would be in the US. And Delara Burkhardt, who's an MEP from the uh, German Progressive uh, Party uh, in Brussels in the European Parliament. She's on the Environmental Committee and she's been a big kind of advocate for the uh, Green Deal. That's, uh, you know, sort of European attempts to uh, copy some of which is in the, some of which is the kind of Green New Deal in the US. So we kind of had a great discussion talking about that. And all the panellists are really reiterating that they felt this was absolutely key. Uh, Santa Sanders spoke a lot, actually, about how kind of moved he was by seeing the uh, Ukrainian resistance uh, in the battlefield. Great, yeah, yeah. There's definitely, um, it's definitely been a lot of conversation. I think uh, in you know different elements in the West, whether you know UK or or, or US or you know Europe in general, um, about the level of involvement and and what needs to be done. Um, what, what's, what's the sense that you have after, you know, having these conversations and the other conversations that you have about, uh, you know, where this, uh, where this approach is going to go? Because I know that, you know, uh, al- almost a, a month ago now, when, when the conflict began, uh, there didn't seem to be a very coherent or cohesive response plan. Now, uh, the response to the invasion has has kind of gone into overdrive to the point that I think a lot of the earlier statements about um, you know targeted sanctions, sanctions that are only going to to hit uh, you know the richest and Putin himself have now kind of like that that excuse has been kind of dispensed with at this point. 
And now it's just this kind of wholesale, uh, seems like it's just like a destruction of the economy in general. Um, and I know that you've been following this, and I'm curious as to how you kind of see that evolution uh, going sure. through. Yeah. And, 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 yeah, and, and how, how that kind of ties into those issues of corruption and, and how to approach Russia uh, from the perspective of these, of these countries. So, you know, I've been working on this for a long time, and um, it's important to kind of look back in history, which is in, you know, Putin's been going on as a political leader now for almost 23 years. That's a generation. The regime's gone through various iterations. He himself has been on a journey from being what uh, people like to call in the Russian uh, liberal press uh, when he first came to power, a sort of Russian Pinochet into this sort of neo-nationalist, neo-imperialist incarnation that he's uh, in now. And Russia, for the first 10 years of his regime, was a booming economy. It was growing uh, almost as fast as China, which is where we get the acronym BRICS from, but Brazil, Russia, India, China, they were all growing in a similar uh, peg. And as it was growing richer, it was also growing more corrupt because the Putin regime was corrupt. And throughout those first uh, 10 years, 2000 to, um, you know, just short shy of 10 years, 2008 with the financial crisis, huge amounts of Russian money was being exported offshore out of the uh, Russian economy into this sort of corrupt uh, nexus of murky uh, shadow finance that was largely created uh, by Britain and America in order for European and American uh, bankers to hide their own uh, dirty cash many, many decades before and avoid taxes many, many decades uh, before. So you have this sort of moment on the eve of Putin's first military intervention in Ukraine in 2014, when there really has started to chalk up a lot of uh, Russian money and Russian influence in, in Europe. And there are two governments in particular make two big mistakes. One is the British government, like of course the UK is very dependent on finance and the UK really sort of rolled out the red carpet for the Russian oligarchs before the first military intervention in Ukraine. And the second country that had made a big uh, mistake was really kind of Germany. And through the long Schroeder-Merkel uh, era, the German policy was economic interdependence, it's good, Russia, we need to trade with it. We need to buy all kinds of energy uh, from it, not just uh, oil and gas, but also coal. And those kind of business ties will bring us uh, close together. And the German elite rolled out the red carpet for uh, Gazprom and Rosneft. And it literally saw the former German uh, Chancellor Gerhard Schroeder go on to work for these sort of Russian state companies that are the sort of corporate uh, type, corporate. Uh, titans of, uh, of really of its state. So the first Ukraine war kind of smashes a lot of illusions about how this is essentially benign. It's the beginning of a campaign, which I was part of, to really start to clean up the city of London and to get... And this, is, this is, sorry, this is 2014 invasion of Crimea, just, just to keep... That's right, yeah, 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 yeah. The beginning of a dirty war in the Donbass, which is the which is in eastern Ukraine, where Putin used that occasion to set up these sort of fake uh, republics of Russian special forces and provocateurs and agitators taking control of these areas. And that's all the beginning of a campaign in the UK to really sort of kick some of Putin's oligarchs out, to really restore, um, you know, or, or even just create in the first place a functioning UK anti-money laundering system. And I was part of that at the time. And in Germany, we see the beginnings of a small campaign to stop building new pipelines with Russia, such as Nord Stream 2, which was under construction and was uh, essentially finished just before the uh, new reinvasion of Ukraine that's, of course, still uh, taking place. But throughout that long period, even with the Trump moment in the United States, the UK government, the German government and the US government had started talking about the danger of Russian dirty money and started talking about the problems of maybe being over-reliant on Russian oil and gas, but had essentially been dragging their feet, like essentially not much substantial had really happened. There have been some sanctions put on some Russian entities and some political figures close to Putin in 2014, but it wasn't in any way kind of structural. It had maybe kind of leveled off an element of Russian financial investment in 
in London, but there were still enormous amounts of cash and influence there. Got it. So, so this is, you know, you know, we're just talking about really the last seven and a half years up. I mean, basically up until what, like two and a half weeks ago, three weeks ago, um, you know, that was the situation. Um, yeah. So like what we're kind of, yeah. what, we're, what we're talking about is basically if you look at London and a lot of other countries in the world have this on a kind of smaller scale, you have, you know, some sanctions on some political figures close to Putin, some political scuffles and expulsions of certain kind of uh, operatives of Russian intelligence. But you still have on the London Stock Exchange, all the big Russian commodities companies are, are listed there. You still have huge presence and players of oligarchs that are intimate parts of the Putin system, such as Roman Abramovich, who sort of is, was the owner of Chelsea, Oleg Deripaska, you know, wielding certain political influence with some of that dirty money finding itself into the uh, coffers of the UK's governing Conservative Party. And then around that, a community of uh, of Brits who are really the enablers uh, of this, which is a whole host of British bankers, lawyers, lobbyists who were more than happy to work with uh, people from uh, that kind of Kremlin network of uh, billionaires to help them launder their cash, launder their uh, reputations and do this in a million different ways from art collections to direct access to political figures. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 just so interesting to to hear it framed this way uh, because I, and I think it's I think it's necessary to do that because by looking at it from this perspective, uh, we can see that, you know, the problem is not solely uh, that there is, you know, this uh, corrupt government uh, petro state in in, you know, e- uh, Eastern Europe and, and across the north of Asia. Uh, the problem is not just that. The problem is that there are uh, incentives for other governments and for other institutions to work alongside of of these governments and, and these these uh, institutions. These, in this case, Russian. Although we could easily say it about any number of other countries, right? We could say it about Saudi exactly. Arabia. You know, we could say, yeah. But um, and and that it seems like the the banking and financial and political institutions. In in the UK, especially as as far as uh, you know, what we're talking about right here, we're only too happy to allow themselves to be used this way. And I, I know that you singled out uh, the conservatives, who obviously have a much closer relationship with this kind of Russian money. But surely, uh, you know, Labour knew about this too. Uh, Absolutely. Had, had there been any kind of political movement to to stem this? I mean, like I, I know what you were talking that, that you were involved with, but um, was there any kind of larger mainstream, like, like was this a, a plank in the Labour Party platform at any time? I mean, was this like a major thing uh, before, so I, either, I guess, in two parts, here. like either before 2014 yeah. and before 2022? So let me just give you an example here. So I really consider that the Putin's imperialist kleptocracy and this grotesque form that it's evolved into, if we look at the origins, it's partially a creation of Western offshore finance. And why do I think that? When communism collapsed, Russia entered capitalism and all these uh, Russian figures that suddenly acquired like vast chunks of formerly state property and state resources found themselves trying to work out how the hell do I plug this into uh, modern capitalism. And one of the examples that really kind of speaks to me of how clueless they were and how they were entering into somebody else's world that was already there is the oligarch Mikhail Khodorkovsky. He was later jailed by Putin, but he was no angel as a younger man. He comes to London with vast amounts of money. Like, I'm not going to comment on how a lot of that was uh, acquired, but, um, you know, it was not uh, a, it was not going to have been uh, acquired in uh, manners that in, in manners that I'm sure you or I would be very comfortable with. As, London, as most get... fortunes, or even all fortunes, usually are, yeah. Absolutely, absolutely. And he comes to London and goes, how do I meet Mr. J.P. Morgan? How do I meet him? And I think that shows the naivete. And he was greeted by, you know, the sort of banker in question that sort of uh, told, told this story. Going, no, 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 no. 
this is how it really works. And all of these bankers, you know, not just in London, also in Switzerland, some of them in the in New York and the United States, guided these figures that became the oligarchs. A lot of them working on behalf of sort of KGB or FSB or SVR figures. Those are other Russian intelligence uh, uh, agencies guided them into a world that already existed, which is a world of tax havens, offshore finance and this network of professional services providers who had begun as professional services providers trying to help Western billionaires, Western banks do tax avoidance and had grown over the decades into being a full-scale corruption services industry. And that's... Yeah, yeah. go ahead, go ahead. So So Russia enters capitalism into that world and the fact that that world already exists creates a dynamic where these... um, where these oligarchs and kleptocrats are symbiotic with these corrupt uh, Western bankers. And that, that dance, that dynamic really just disfigures uh, Russia as a political economy. Huge amounts of money are taken offshore, laundered offshore, disappear into London property, into New York property, into Swiss property, into the art markets in order to kind of launder it and hide uh, that money. And that enables the kleptocratic elite around Vladimir Putin to feel that they're firstly masters of the universe, literally masters of Russia, and also that the West are sort of decadent, corrupt, insincere people who have no values and are a bunch of hypocrites to be pushed around. Got it. And so, and, and so that kind of, you know, puts us at the point that that we are in 2014, right? That That's, takes that, us to 2014. Yeah, yeah. That, that takes us to 2014. And, you know, I think, I think it's important always to kind of also qualify this by saying that, you know, not only uh, were, you know, like, so all this money is coming out of Russia and it's, you know, it's being dispersed and laundered and spread through the, the West uh, by, by these billionaires, by these oligarchs. But it's not just that. I mean, it's also that the people in Russia, especially after the fall of communism and and this kind of hyper uh, capitalistic, just like seizure of assets uh, by by all of these interests, you know, whether whether they were Russian interests or, uh, you know, Western or other interests like coming in. The people of Russia at this time are just are are just having a severely declined um, standards of living. Um, has that up until this point had that improved or or was that kind of the same situation this this extreme inequality that that you know while, while we live in in an unequal society here um the way that it's always sounded to me there is like it's kind of like that but like kind of uh hyper extended so i'm really glad you asked that uh question and that's really important to understand how the russian people think and kind of view uh the modern world and it's crucial to remember that the late Soviet Union is a society where normal Russians think they live in a successful superpower. And it was widely expected that the widely popular choice to dissolve the Soviet Union, literally to leave the Soviet Union, which is what sort of Yeltsin uh, did um, with his sort of political gang in sort of signing the Belovej uh, Accords, dissolving it. They believe that you know, they would be living like Americans or at worst, like Brits in a few years. And then the absolute shock for Russia to, to exit communism and find itself in a, in a situation of really catastrophic tra- uh, transition in terms of people's living standards had a really scarring effect. So to give you an example, the, you know, what happened in Russia in the um, 1990s in terms of living standards was... For a large country, the biggest ever disaster in living standards outside of wartime ever recorded. You have astonishing collapse in life expectancy, uh, meat consumption, um, uh, quality of life, quality of life, terrifying rises of heart attacks, diseases, violent violent crime, corruption. Uh, murder rates. And if you want to look at the statistics, those statistics of inflation, those uh, which really is ruinous for normal people, 
The 1990s begins with terrifying macroeconomic instability that just destroys people's savings, stabilises a little bit, and then we go helter-skelter towards the default in 1988. So one of Putin's advisors, Gleb Pavlovsky, a former Putin advisor, he was working with him uh, at the, working with him in the first few years of his reign, told me that that 1998 default was the second founding of the state. That was the moment that Yeltsin and the people around him, their hopes of uh, you know, transitioning the country calmly towards liberal democracy died. And that's when they felt the urgent need for Yeltsin's successor to be a sort of martial military man. And that's where the search for, for Putin began. And that's where they started looking around in the security services for people to buttress their rules. So two big things we can take away from the 1990s. One is that we should not, you know, we, you know, when Russians talk about that having the collapse of communism having been a disastrous period uh, for them, believe them. They're talking about real socioeconomic suffering that they had, even though they had, of course, left the totalitarian uh, regime. It's important to realise that and understand why there was support for Putin in the um, uh, in the first place. And it's important to remember that Yeltsin's government was seeking a Marshall Plan or some kind of economic aid or some kind of support to stop monstrous capital flight. And the United States didn't provide that and, and didn't try and stabilise Russia and possibly missed the chance to turn uh, Russia into uh, an ally at that moment, which is what many um, Russian liberals think, that that was a terrible kind of missed uh, opportunity, uh, to the terrible missed opportunity. To just to just kind of like integrate Russia into into the world system that that kind of had existed around it for decades up until that point, right? To, it, and exactly. but instead, um, and I'm and I'm just going to kind of say this to you, and, and you can correct me if I'm wrong on this, but instead, what happened is uh, Russia was kind of semi isolated uh, from the West and, and 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 rejected when you know. It's, it's appeals to kind of join uh, the Western economic and, and, and political sphere were rejected. And so uh, it kind of this kind of inward turn leads to Putin. But it does seem to me that uh, in the way that you're ex- describing it and explaining it, that Putin's uh, Putin coming in and taking over was not meant to be a. Uh, any kind of a permanent solution. It seemed like it was maybe something temporary, but uh, despite that, has been going on for over two decades. Would that be accurate? So I'm part of the camp of people that believe that the United States made big mistakes, and so did Britain and the European countries on a small scale uh, in the 1990s. And I think that we should have offered large-scale, quote-unquote, martial aid to Russia in the early 1990s and tried to stabilise the Russian uh, economy to avoid uh, default. You know, Yeltsin, in 1998, he was actually considering Boris Nemtsov to be his successor. Now, Boris Nemtsov, uh, as a name you might have heard of, because he was actually assassinated by uh, Vladimir Putin uh, after the beginning of the first uh, military in- intervention in Ukraine in 2014. You know, colourful... Uh, a colourful character, a man indeed with flaws, but a convinced Democrat, a dedicated member of the Russian opposition once Putin came to Paris, somebody who uh, prophesied indeed this terrible situation uh, that Russia finds itself in uh, now, and somebody who was not in any way a kind of neo-imperialist or a uh, security services uh, man. So here's a question of, like, how did Putin come to power? So end of the 1990s, after the default... Boris Yeltsin, multiple heart attacks. He's drinking so much, he's barely compass for half the day. Power in the country was being exercised by what was called the family. That's Yeltsin's daughter, that's her husband, who was the head of the, um, you know, what's called the sort of Kremlin bodyguards, but really it's like a small branch of the military to protect the Kremlin. There's like a lot of, make it sound like bodyguards, sound like just like four or five of them, but actually there are thousands of them. And the oligarch uh, Boris Berezovsky. They came together and they were thinking, OK, we need to find a successor. And they were looking for somebody who was like not Yeltsin, somebody who was young, somebody who was sober, somebody who was military, somebody who, you know, 
crucially, it would be a bodyguard to them, like that wouldn't jail Yeltsin. Yeltsin was really frightened of being jailed and was really frightened of some kind of confusing communist or KGB, FSB sort of uh, revanchism. Putin, after a series of candidates flop for them, Putin is picked as the successor. He's uh, made uh, prime. He's made prime minister, and then he quickly uh, becomes president. And the crucial thing that uh, crucial thing for us to remember is there's a lot of talk about oligarchs now and about oligarch sanctions, and are those going to stop Putin? But Russia then and Russia now is completely different in terms of political economy. At the beginning. Putin worked for the oligarchs. The oligarchs made Putin. Now, almost 23 years later, Putin has destroyed any independent-minded uh, oligarch. And the oligarchs that exist work for Putin, are dependent on Putin, not the other way around. A good way to understand them is actually a Moscow joke, which is they're not oligarchs. They just work as oligarchs, which means that Putin's appointed these usually ex-Secret Service guys, either to run state companies or to sit on tops of these crucial natural resources so he can control the uh, commanding heights of the economy. And we've seen that we've seen that uh, that has, well, I mean, from the outside, but like that it has worked for for a limited amount of time. But and and I think that, you know, even in 2014, we probably wouldn't have seen the country (laughs) respond uh, to the war the way that it has responded to this one. But it does seem with this one and with, you know, with this conflict with Ukraine, that we're starting to see a lot of cracks uh, in in the in in the regime. Um, so how, how do we how do we kind of get to that point where, you know, like, you know, eight to 10 years ago, it seemed it seemed like uh, this was a pretty like he had a pretty much locked down. Um, I would have even said four weeks ago, if you had asked me, that he had a pretty locked down. <laughs> But now it doesn't seem that way. I mean, you know, that these anti-war protests, there are people who are speaking out. Um, what like what politically has changed in that way? And, and how do you kind of like square that with 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 the rest of this history that you're kind of talking about? So let's look at it from the point of view of a normal member of the Russian public, then from a member of the Russian opposition and then from somebody inside the regime. So if you're a normal Perfect. Russian, you prop you. Will probably very supportive of the fall of the Soviet Union. Then you were horrified by what happened. You came to think that Yeltsin was an idiot or possibly treacherous. And you probably almost kind of fell in love with Putin politically when he first came to power um, in 2000. And for you, because you're not focused on politics every day and you're watching a lot of, uh, you're watching TV that's been censored since the very early 2000s and deeply ruthlessly effective propaganda, your experience of Putinism would have been like this, which is for the 2000s, booming living standards, the emergence of a middle class and macroeconomic stability. No inflation, no runaway inflation, paycheck coming in, wages are fine. Then, you know, after the war in, um, uh, the war in Ukraine in 2014, a bit of stagnation. But you've still been enjoying if you've still been enjoying foreign holidays. You've still been enjoying, you know, Western and uh, Western and, you know, some Asian, some Korean, some Japanese, some Chinese computing. You've probably kind of been to Greece a few times or Turkey. And you're going to have a lot of Western consumer durables in your in your in your home. And you probably uh, in 2014 um, were part of a majority of people that rapturously received the uh, annexation of uh, Crimea to uh, Russia, uh, which was an extremely successful military operation by the Russians. It was wildly popular. And it unleashed a sort of nationalist fervor, a bit like the Falklands War in Britain, a sort of small sort of thing, uh, not that many casualties, made the country feel great again. So what's this experience like for you? You have probably been struggling with and being deeply distracted by COVID, the Russian government's disastrous response to COVID, in which uh, over a million uh, Russians are believed to have died. And that's not, you know, Russia's got a population of half that of the United States. And in the last few weeks, you've been absolutely shocked to see all of that stability, all of that macroeconomic stability. Stability used to be Putin's slogan, stabilness. You've seen it just utterly exploded. 
the stock exchange is closed, um, the ruble is yo-yoing, all of the kind of the, what you thought was the deal where, okay, he's a bit, he's authoritarian at home, but I can travel around the world and buy Western consumer goods. It's completely unraveled in front of your eyes. You can't even get to Europe if you had a visa because European airspace is close to Russians. You, let's say you live in, in, in Moscow or St. Petersburg or Novosibirsk, half of your favorite stores uh, that were iconic for you about post, uh, post-Soviet life are disappearing. McDonald's is closing. You're probably very, confu- you're probably shocked and confused. And here's a problem for Western sanctions, which is you've just been hit by all of this and you don't really understand why. Because Putin has systematically blocked all access to uh, Western media in Russia or, or a lot of Western media full stop. TV propaganda is pumping out that America's uh, out, to, out, out to get you. And you don't really know what's going on in Ukraine. You might be getting some indication. and You might know that some people say that terrible crimes are being committed there. But for the moment, most Russians uh, don't fully grasp, I think, what's happening. So that's So that's the... The ordinary, the the average Russian. That's the ordinary right. ordinary person. So let's have a look at the perspective from the Russian opposition. Now, Americans have always felt that Putin was a dictator and that Putin was running an authoritarian regime. But political scientists, you know, can usually be pretty obtuse. But here they have a kind of useful frame for us, which is Putin, Putin ran for most of this period what they like to call a hybrid regime, which is authoritarian mainframe, you can't touch that, you're not going to be able to challenge the results of the elections, but it's hybrid because there are going to be pockets of freedom and free speech and zones that could be even a bit competitive. So Putin censored TV and controlled TV, but he left the internet without a great firewall like in China. You could write polemics against Putin on your blog, you could organise a little bit of opposition, you could maybe get elected to a little mayoralty here and there. And you could do journalism, more or less, as long as it didn't go after certain banned topics. There was a real risk of uh, getting shot, uh, actually. So don't want to be too romantic about this uh, hybrid regime. And this regime has been transitioning over a long time towards what political scientists in the West would call fully authoritarian or what Russians would call totalitarian. And Alexei Navalny, a kind of Russian opposition leader, his career is a good kind of example of this. So 2010, 2011, he... Yeah, you could just go meet him. He was blogging away furiously and you there were protest movements. You know, I remember going to kind of bars and he'd be there in a sort of excited atmosphere with sort of even some sort of members of the Duma and newspaper editors and opposition activists all sitting around him kind of smoking, thinking, OK, how are we going to get these protests on the road? 2013, he's allowed to run, but not, of course not to win, to be mayor of Moscow. A year later, after the first military intervention in uh, Ukraine, his website gets blocked. His channels are blocked. He's put under house arrest. You know, when he's uh, his organization gets increasingly harassed over the next few years, his um, increasingly harassed over the next few years. Then uh, as the pandemic sort of like kicks off, they really start to go in for the kill. Literally, in this case, he the regime attempts to assassinate him in uh, 2020. He goes back to Russia. They arrest him. They throw him into a prison colony. And then a law is passed branding his organization as illegal as Al-Qaeda. And it's retroactively applied. So the organization has to flee the country. So that's from hybrid regime to full uh, authoritarianism. What are the Russian opposition uh, feeling? What are the Russian opposition feeling now? (sighs) I'm getting two things. And I'm going to let you judge and the listeners judge which you think is the most kind of accurate. Over the last few weeks, that curtain at the end of that hybrid regime has really finally descended on Moscow. And that kind of sociology that produced that protest movement uh, in, 2010, in 2011, uh, 2012, 2012, editors, journalists, sort of hipsters, uh, bloggers coming out of the Internet, like 20,000 people have fled Russia in the last few weeks. And it's a lot of those people. It's mostly those people. Like most of my friends have just fled the country. And they fled the country because they think that it's going to be like the new Stalinism. Purges are coming. The borders could be closed. Let's get out now. Let's get out now. Like the country they feel is hurtling towards Iran or North Korea. A la Russe. Some opposition out of the country have told me, you know... This could be 1970s. This could be Putin's first world war. 
you know, the Tsar's opponents were living abroad. Uh, Lenin, famously in Zurich, and you know, one of the, the one of the mantras of revolutionaries of those generations was the worse the better. And some Russian uh, opposition people I've been speaking to are kind of a little bit accelerationist about it, thinking any mistake, any catastrophic mistake the Tsar makes, like discrediting himself, blowing up his stability, is uh, is good for uh, is good for us. Sure, and I think I think um, I mean that 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 sentiment is something that uh, is is certainly not not unique to their uh, to their politics. That's something that I think I think we see a lot of. Um, so those are the two. Right? Well, yeah, I'll so take you inside the Kremlin if you want, and I'll get, tell you what I what some sources and what I've been my analysis is of how people in the Kremlin are and what we kind of what pictures we're we're getting, which is yeah, yeah, that'd be good. The, yeah. They had the best deal. You know, you think that the normal Russian had an okay deal, which was, you know, censored TV, uh, economy that had been, you know, pretty stagnant because of uh, sanctions. But, you know, consumer goods, access to the West, it was still it was uh, still present. Macroeconomic stability meant that life had been pretty much okay. If you were in the Kremlin, you really had the full advantages of globalization, unless you really were one of the few people that did uh, Crimea. With the advantages of an authoritarian state, you could rule, you could live the life of, in Russia of being the uh, sort of peon of uh, a despot. He could hand you huge resources corruptly and then you could just contact your British banker, go and stay in your French chateau. You could turn up, you could launder money through Delaware or through other American tax havens. You could rock up in Switzerland, you know, and these people were living lives of you know absolutely sort of almost degenerate uh pursuit of uh of hedonism and of consumption of the uh western uh high life and these people putin has destroyed that uh that deal that deal for them completely now almost every single member of the russian elite is under intense western sanctions they're shocked they're horrified a lot of them have like effectively lost their fortunes and they too have kind of woken up really realizing what was drifting from a regime and by that i mean where different political figures have influence or business figures can have influence there are strong ministers vested interests maybe the security services have a say into just a dictatorship has been uh, uh has been uh accomplished so i'm hearing a few things about how those people are uh thinking a lot of them are just in mourning a lot of them are just because they're all sanctioned around Putin, have decided that's it. You know, we'll go down together. There's no hope. We've just got to stick with uh, him in this uh, uh, situation. Some of them are being kind of radicalised around uh, Putin. A lot of them are horrified and terrified that all of the problems of Putin's kleptocracy are now coming back to roost. So we look at the battlefield in Ukraine. Putin thought he'd spent billions uh, getting a whole kind of spy network in place to get politicians to flip. A lot of that money was probably stolen. All the things we're seeing about the bad performance of his equipment, a lot of that money was stolen. So a lot of these guys are really frightened for their heads. They're frightened that they're, they could be purged. Uh, there's reason to believe that some purges have already begun. So they're pretty, they're pretty scared in their, uh, uh, their palaces, and they're still kind of shocked and in uh, uh, whiplash. I think it's important, though, there's a lot of, you know, Western debate's a pretty weird place about this. And I think a lot of the Washington debate is pretty wish-casty, if you'll ask me. Um, I think a lot of American officials talk about Russia as if it's still that hybrid regime. Like, I've noticed in my conversations with them, they seem to think that the oligarchs are just going to, like, walk in and go, OK, let's put a stop to that, Vladimir. And that's not really how a dictatorship works. That's how a hybrid regime works. These people are, are, are really scared that they could be, they could literally disappear uh, overnight. That you know, there's a lot of people seem to think that like a protest movement is just going to like appear in the streets and it's going to be like a sort of democratic 1917. I think that's quite unlikely when 20,000 people have fled the country and those people are the core of what would be a democratic. Uh, protest uh, movement and I think that if there are going to be cracks or there are going to be 
I wish they are. There are some. They're going to be people coming for Putin. It could e- just as easily be something far worse. It could just as easily be like furious veterans, uh, the Donbass and Mikolaev and Kharkiv uh, getting getting angry and uh, coming back to, to Moscow politically in some uh, form in a, in a few years. Yeah, I think that, I mean, I think that's a that's a really good point. And and also is um, and and maybe we can discuss this a little bit later, but you know, that's also one of the concerns with the Ukrainian state, you know, what happens after this conflict, who, you know, who, who is politically emboldened. Um, and, and I just, you know, the parallels there are because, you know, you, you have a large amount of people leaving and then the people who are staying uh, and, you know, who, who may end up in political power after all of this, you never know. Um but but that's that's kind of neither here nor there for for this. Um, I I am curious as to, you know you're talking about hybrid regime, you're talking about um, the move to a kind of more autocratic kind of dictatorial uh, approach to governing in Russia, and with you know twenty thousand people leaving, um, you know all, all of these intellectuals, people who could possibly change the way. Uh, the government in Russia works. Uh, I think for it, it seems from the outside looking in that a lot of ordinary Russians are probably very angry, uh, not only at Putin and at his at his government, as as I'm sure that they are, but also at the West for these sanctions. Um, and I'm wondering, like, at what point do these sanctions or maybe we've already passed this point? Uh, have they kind of cease to have any kind of utility as far as as uh convincing people in russia to uh to change things uh you know on their own to kind of uh you know be out there to expose the cracks in the regime and and at what point they'll kind of make people kind of turn the other way and kind of uh almost kind of create a phalanx around the state because the uh, because there is like an outside other that you can blame, if that makes sense. So I mean, that's a great question. I really is something I'm thinking about all the time. So I think is really important. So I'll tell you a little bit about why I think is the wrong approach. And the wrong approach is that of the former U.S. ambassador to Moscow, uh, Michael McFall, who's been tweeting at a rate. I think feverish doesn't quite do it justice uh, over the last uh, few weeks. And it's always very interesting to me that people who are the shrillest uh, online now in the kind of extended Russia studies universe are often the people who were the most supportive of resets or detente or understanding with the Putin regime. And this is an ambassador that really tried to spearhead the reset uh, with Russia when he was there in Moscow. So he's been calling for mass protests. He's been calling for people in the elite to kind of speak out, to come into the streets. And I'm not really, I'm not really sure who he thinks he's speaking to from his Twitter account, because Twitter is banned. Uh, it, it, well, it's basically throttled in Russia at this uh, uh, point. And I just think that, you know, when something's... Cr- Russia's crossing... It's not quite there yet, but it's crossing into an almost totalitarian situation. Calling for people to do that is calling for people to risk potentially 15 years in jail. And we have to be kind of realistic and understanding of what people can and can't do in a totalitarian regime. The United States was always very good about that and understanding that's what the Soviet Union was like. Uh, You know, we need to sort of shift our understanding of Russia. And also I think it's important to acknowledge that, especially during COVID, Russia really started to evolve into a real dictatorship. And Putin's mind is, you know, it's, it's a black box. We don't really understand what's going on in the Kremlin. You know, Winston Churchill once said that, you know, trying to understand Kremlin politics was like watching bulldogs uh, fighting uh, under a, uh, a rug. And we don't have bulldogs there, but we do potentially have a few mice or rats underneath that, that rug. And we just don't really understand it. So when relating to the Soviet Union, you know, we were, were often pretty intellectually humble. You know, we... We're always honest. We don't really know what's going on in the Kremlin because we don't really know. We've got to be really direct. Don't do this. I'm not going to do that. Be really clear. And I think Biden's got that right. Be really clear. I'm not going to start a war on 
uh, Russia, I'm not going to do a no-fly zone because you can't guarantee that people in that weird, feverish hothouse will understand that. In the 1980s, um, there was something called Operation Able Archer, where the Soviet uh, elite thought that a NATO training exercise was preparations for a first strike. Like, you just just be really clear. Like, don't assume that they see the world or think uh, like you. And then just stop trying to second guess what these things are going to do to Russian society because it's really complicated. We don't really know what it could do. And we should just be pretty intellectually humble considering a lot of people in the West, especially in Europe, it just categorically thought this wasn't going to happen until just uh, uh, a few uh, weeks ago. So I think that's an important... Uh, approach to take now with Russia where it is. And as far as sanctions are concerned, um, look, it's a really difficult uh, moment, but it's a really difficult, uh, it's a really difficult moment uh, for, 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 for Russia, for the Russian people, and the full scale of these uh, sanctions haven't even begun to be felt. You know, I'll give you one example, um, aviation, because Aviation today is essentially dependent on supplies from uh, abroad. Companies boycotting, sending those uh, supplies and export controls means that even Russian domestic aviation will not be possible in a few weeks or a few months, which will lead to planes being grounded, air travel starting to grind to a halt. Like daily life in Russia is going to get really hard uh, really quickly. So what's the debate? Right now, there are people, especially in Europe, that are saying we need to offer to lift as many of these sanctions as possible, uh, with the exception of the oligarch and personal sanctions, if there's even a ceasefire. Then you have another side, you know, a lot of them in the United States or in the UK, saying we shouldn't lift, we should lift a minimum of these sanctions because we want a permanently uh, weakened uh, Russia. So I'm trying to think what was, what is a kind of progressive response uh, here. So um, the political economist, uh, Monsieur Piketty, wrote an interesting kind of article uh, in, I believe it was Le Monde the other day, in which I think he correctly pointed out that all of these uh, sanctions for the moment are avoiding the actual crux of what the Putin regime is, which is the Putin regime is a gassy petro-state. It's exporting all of its natural resources um, in enormous quantities uh, to uh, Europe. And if you were an alien, like sort of trying to analyse the situation, you'd think, what the hell's going on here? Why have these Western countries put all these tough sanctions on Russia? But I can see here that the Europeans are paying the Russians $600 million a day for all these resources. Is there some kind of secret alliance going on here? I don't understand it. You know, Piketty was saying that we need to move towards accelerated uh, decarbonisation and find ways to make sure that the sanctions that hurt normal Russians uh, are, amel- are ameliorated. So I think that's a really interesting kind of starting point uh, to try and work out where we go sort of long uh, long term uh, with this. Got it. And, you know, we, uh, we only have about, you know, uh, 10 or 15 minutes here, but um, I just wanted to shift kind of more to the war in general. Uh, and you know, you were uh, one of the few people who I know who pretty much predicted that this was going to happen. Um, myself and all, I think almost almost everybody else that I talked to uh, did not think that this kind of full scale invasion was going to happen. Um, but you did see it coming. And I, uh, there's been a lot of talk, I think, uh, you know, within Western media and uh, Western governments about how. Russia's losing, uh, you know, you know, Russia's on the ropes. Uh, it, what do you think is happening here? Do you think that that's accurate or do you think that that is maybe uh, an, an exaggeration or an oversimplification of what is happening on the ground there? So I think let's begin actually with, with Twitter. And I think that's an important place to begin because so much of the Western debate is coming out, coming out of there and, uh, you know, British and French officials are reading it all day, every day, making announcements of the blow-by-blow on the military campaign, uh, campaigns on Twitter. Twitter is not a like, neutral environment right now. It's a info environment under total Ukrainian dominance. The Ukrainians are, to say they're winning the info war is an understatement. It's 
Um, you know, we're seeing Zelensky in terms of the info war be a triumphant uh, young Napoleon, absolutely killing it uh, 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 there. Uh, he's been so successful in this that I've actually, for the first time in my life, really understood what it would have been like in the United States in, you know, sort of 1940, as sort of Churchill was appealing for um, the country to uh, enter the uh, war before uh, Pearl Harbor. And the whole, you know, Twitter is where a lot of the, is where all this information is getting dumped, but not all the information is there. There's very little information, very little videos about Ukrainian losses, about Ukrainian tanks that are being that are being blown up. There's very little reporting coming from Ukrainian uh, front lines, and that's because the Ukrainians have been really effective at getting their people. Don't post, don't tweet, don't do pictures, don't 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 tell don't tell people what's uh, uh, go, do, what, what what's going on uh, there. They've been very good at getting uh, as many images as possible of the stuff that's happened to the Russians. And so a lot of this kind of like open source intelligence analysis, it's like based on a kind of partial uh, picture. So the Russians are in trouble. The Russians went in with a uh, plan to do what was almost like a raid. It was a special uh, operation, as Putin insists on still uh, calling it. They thought they could make the country collapse uh, in just a few days, that a lot of the Ukrainian army would come over, that Zelensky would run away. There would be a bit like their war in Georgia in 2008. So they were completely wrong in that. And then they've been converting to a good old classic war. And we've known ever since the mid-20th century that when you find you know, a good old classic war, if your enemy runs away from the cities, as the Ukrainians did from Melitopol and Kherson, they chose not to defend those locations. You can move in, you can go occupy it pretty easily. But if you decide to fight in the cities, oof, very difficult. It's actually very difficult to flush a modern army out of the city if people are resisting their house-to-house combat, people shooting neighbourhood-to-neighbourhood. Just look how difficult it was for the Assad regime backed by Russia to take Aleppo. And look at how difficult it was for the Soviet Union to take back Kiev or to take Warsaw in World War II. It's really or, difficult. Or the US in Fallujah. Yeah, I mean, like, there's, Absolutely. there's countless, countless examples. Countless It's just really difficult. So the Russians have found themselves without really having prepared now in this war for cities, in which there are various cities that they've encircled or they've entered. In the north, there's Cherniv. In the east, there's Kharkiv. In the south, there's... Um, there's Mariupol. Uh, in the southwest, there's um, in the southwest there's Mikolaev, and it's really tough. They're finding it very. They're finding it difficult. So the next kind of week or so will be crucial to see how much uh, progress they make. Uh, progress they make there. So it's, it's not clear. It looks like it's not clear, but it's not the war they wanted to to fight, and it means that they've opted uh, under duress to the classic. Russian playbook, which kind of frankly is the only playbook, really, if you want to take a, a city uh, like this, which is got to cordon off area after area, and you've got to, you've got to, you've got to show it. You know, and that's how World War Two was fought. And then they've added these elements that we've seen time and time again over the last twenty-three years of how Putin's army in the field operates, which is targeting civilians, targeting key civilian infrastructure like kind of hospitals or. Uh, so on to sort of to diminish, diminish uh, morale, and there's rising concern amongst Western officials that there might be a willingness to use chemical weapons from uh, Russia's part to help kind of flush out forces on the ground, which would be a very dangerous and very difficult situation for the West. Now, in the north, again, mixed kind of picture. It, military analysts are kind of divided into two uh, two camps. There are those that say that the Russians have just fluffed it, as we say in the UK. And they're not going to be able to fully encircle uh, Kiev because they screwed up their logistics, because they screwed up, they sent the wrong kind of armies, they, there's just not enough of them, and they're not making enough progress. There's another side that says, and this appears to be what um, European officials are, and I can break that down a little bit in a minute, which is that the Russians are pretending to negotiate uh, with the Ukrainians in order to basically regroup. They need to take a breather. They need to work out what the hell's going on. They need to fix all these problems that have just humiliatingly uh, appeared to the appear to the world. So they've kind of kind of stopped, and they're doing kind of probes. They're not fully going for it uh, uh, again. Like they're not the blitzkrieg is not 
uh, on, so to speak. They're trying to fix a lot of these problems. So there's what are the big what are the Western allies think? So the the Brits have been very very forward with their uh, communication, uh, very very supportive of Ukraine. They're describing the invasion as uh, stalled or faltering, which is what the Ministry of Defence called it. Uh, yesterday. I know that behind the scenes, British officials have told me, yes, Putin can take Kiev, but at what cost? Because a city of that big, you, you just, you know, the only way to take it is really to destroy it. And then how the hell are you going to, how the hell are you going to hold it? Right. It's incredibly uh, difficult. Some people think that what Putin is trying to do is to destroy the cities in the south and the east whilst laying off a bit on Kiev to kind of frighten Zelensky into making concessions and crucially asking for Western sanctions uh, to be taken off. Meanwhile, the French and the French were really, and I think correctly, insistent on trying to negotiate with Putin to the last possible moment. The French have now gone very, very dark. Like The French foreign minister has said that Putin's lying. You can't negotiate with him. He's just doing this to regroup his army. And the French um, head of the army, Le General Burkhard, now this is like, this guy's like, you know, very serious guy, and got a lot of probably better information than people on Twitter, said the other day that he's worried that the Ukrainian army could suddenly collapse because it doesn't have an operationalized reserve. So I think the war is pretty confusing. I think there is confusion with uh, Western leaders. So I would just urge people not to take what they're seeing on Twitter with a pinch of salt and not let the the hope or optimism or the support for a kind of valiant and heroic Ukrainian resistance uh, um, make them think they're seeing the whole picture. Great, great. And just uh, just the last couple of minutes, and, and only because I mentioned this earlier, and I, I just wanted to get um, your perspective on it. You know, we, we, we've talked a lot about uh, the political ramifications of this war in Russia and, and the background of it. And, uh, you know, I'm not going to ask that we do the whole background of Ukrainian politics, because that's, I don't think that we have another hour uh, as great as that would be. But, uh, you know, given the uh, the elements uh, in Ukrainian uh, military and, you know, in the politics there, uh, the, you know, the, it's, it's been kind of a back and forth with this kind of nationalism. And Zelensky, uh, I believe, you know, kind of ran against a lot of this kind of stuff. Uh, but do you think that it's possible that at the end of this conflict, um, we see not only, you know, in in Russia kind of, you know, like an, an increased autocratic authoritarian, uh, you know, it, it kind of extremist nationalist regime. Um, but do you think it's possible that in Ukraine now this is assuming that 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 Ukraine uh, makes it out of this with with an intact and independent government? But if that does happen, do you think that it's possible that Ukraine makes it out of there uh, without seeing you know, these these undesirable elements uh, that that and, and again, that are not like a, a, a politically powerful part of the country right now. But do you think it's possible that we would see them being powerful afterward? So, you know, a war like this, a big war of conquest in Europe, that's not a civil war, that's not a short intervention has not happened for so long, but I think people have forgotten a couple of things. They've forgotten just how many people die in high-intensity combat. There's a lot of shock about how many Russian soldiers have uh, have died, especially from uh, Americans comparing it to the war in Vietnam or the war in um, Afghanistan. But these were not exactly the same, not exactly the the same thing. So people have forgotten how deadly it is. People have forgotten how. Um, unpredictable war is so how crucial things like logistics can be or signals intelligence or how a weaker army can defeat a uh, a big one so you know the Ukrainians are showing us that war is uh, really uh, really unpredictable and then you know these things go on for a long time I'll give you one uh, couple of examples which is let's have a look at like Hitler's invasion of of Poland, like he lost twenty thousand troops, it went on for over a month. You know, it's you know these things take a long time. And Hitler's invasion of France, similar figures went on for a similar amount of time. Or that classic example in history of a successful short uh, war, which is the Franco-Prussian War, went on for six months, and the Germans lost fifty thousand troops. So these things are incredibly 
bloody and painful and costly, which is why, you know, sort of thank heavens that they don't happen uh, so often anymore, or they haven't until uh, this point. So I think the question of, like, Ukraine's future, it's going to be decided on the battlefield. Like, it's totally possible that over the next few weeks, we could see some catastrophic mistakes on either side or some acts of tactical genius that could, for example, see the Ukrainian army in the Donbass that's fighting Russia be encircled and cut off. You know, that would be a huge blow to Ukrainian morale. And Then what happens and the whole narrative of the war changes. Or we could see the Ukrainians even push back the Russians out of a few uh, areas uh, Either. We haven't seen any evidence that they're capable of doing that, I must add, but it's not out of the question. And then the narrative will continue to change. So I think Ukraine's fate will be decided on the battlefield, and that's really unpredictable. You know, there are all kinds of very optimistic and also very dark and, and pessimistic futures for Ukraine here. And, and that's the nature of war. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, Ben, uh, thank you so much for for taking the time uh, to talk. This has been great. I know, you know, we had, like I said, uh, at the top of the show, we have been uh, planning this, uh, you know, in, in one form or another for, for a while. So I'm really glad that we got to do it. Uh, hope that you can come back soon and talk about this. And yes, hopefully please. We'll have, hopefully we'll have a, you know, maybe a more positive uh, topic uh, to discuss. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Exactly. So thanks, everybody, for listening. Uh, if you're listening on the app, please be sure to subscribe to the show. If you're listening to this on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify, be sure to subscribe and rate. Um, yeah, and thanks, everybody, for joining. And thanks again to Ben Judah uh, for joining to just kind of uh, break down all of this information about Russia, Russian society, and the war in Ukraine. Thanks, Ben, and let's talk, to, let's talk soon. All right, bye. Thank you.